pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask for the protection of your angels as we gather here today. Father, as we gather in our homes or around our mobile tablets and devices, I pray that your spirit will be speaking to each of our hearts. I pray that your spirit will be the only spirit present within our homes and within our hearts. I ask for the, the anointing of your spirit as I share this morning, but the words I share will be from your throne of grace. I ask this mercy in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I would like to uh, just a uh, little bit about myself, just so we know, you know uh, who I am. Uh, my, uh, my name is Conrad Vine. I serve with Adventist Frontier Missions, as uh, Sister Josie has already shared. And um, I, uh, I am privileged to be married. I'm the husband of one wife, uh, which is good news because I only have one mother-in-law. Uh, there is my wife there. She was raised in the Soviet Union. When communism collapsed in the, uh, 1989, 1990, uh, evangelists, lay evangelists spread out across the former Soviet Union. And uh, she was a teenager at the time and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And uh, then she, she was growing up in, in, a, in a Muslim Republic of the Soviet Union. And uh, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And we met while I was serving with ADRA in Central Asia back in the mid nineties. And that is a picture of us there when we got our US citizenship back in 2016. And we are blessed by God with two children. Uh, there is our son there on the right, David. He's now at Southern uh, studying a nursing program. And my daughter on the left, our daughter, uh, she's 15 years old and she's a real source of joy and, and uh, just happiness within our life. And I want to share with you that God's blessings are incredible and we serve an awesome Heavenly Father. And uh, so those are the blessings of, of our Heavenly Father. And I want to talk with you today about a topic I've entitled our talk today, Deliver Us From Evil. I'm talking about this today because this is something that we're seeing more and more in pastoral ministry. Uh, as a missionary, and I've lived and worked in over 30 countries around the world, I see increasingly people are asking for to be set free from the attacks of Satan. And uh, these attacks come in multiple ways. For some people, it's more like harassment. For other people, it is oppression. And for some others, it is uh, possession. And so I want to talk with you today about uh, what Jesus promised in the Lord's Prayer when he taught us to pray to our Heavenly Father, deliver us from evil. What was he talking about when, when he taught us to pray, deliver us from evil? You know, here in our Western world, uh, we are the product, we're the shape, we are shaped by the Renaissance, uh, by the Reformation and by the Enlightenment. And this means that we, we share a, a rationalistic or a scientific worldview that assumes that there is no reality beyond the material and the natural universe. If something cannot be measured, it does not exist. And this attitude has, has come across into Western theology, not just Adventist theology, but Western theology as a whole. For instance, William Barclay, a very famous theologian of the mid 20th century, he wrote that when Jesus, uh, when Mark 5 said that Jesus was casting out a demon, um, Barclay wrote that Jesus was engaged in, quote, the defeat of pain. Now, I agree that Jesus was defeating pain, but the story is more than about just defeating pain. Jesus was casting out a demon. And so by implication, Jesus Christ himself was a victim of delusion and primitive superstition. And for many mainstream theologians today, demonic harassment and possession come out of a primitive, superstitious worldview that we have fortunately escaped from in the 21st century. And yet this is profoundly ironic because many Westerners all across the West, they actually, although they profess skepticism in spiritual matters, they're fascinated by spiritualism. They're fascinated by the occult and actually by Satanism. And the New Age or the spirituality section of any Barnes and Noble or any other mega bookstore 
they tend to be filled with multiple volumes dealing with new age and spiritualism and actually the occult. And so it is a mistake to assume as Christians in the 21st century that somehow we've been liberated from these primitive superstitions, that Satan doesn't exist and there's no such a thing as demons all around us. We know as Adventists what Revelation 12, 17 says, that um, Satan was wrath with the woman and went off to make war with the remnant of her children. So clearly, um, Satan is attacking God's remnant. So why are we surprised when things start to go wrong in our lives? And so if we look at some examples, we're going to start out by looking at four examples of famous characters in the Bible who had satanic or demonic attack during their life. And these were righteous individuals by and large. And of course, the first is the story of Job. And uh, we know that Job was directly harassed by Satan within parameters that were clearly established by God. Job was never possessed as such, nor was he oppressed, but he was certainly experiencing harassment. And he was attacked by Satan through the death of his children and through what his wife was saying, through what his friends were saying to him, and by the painful boils on his body and by the loss of his reputation and prestige within the community. Now, the turning point in Job's experience when in his attacks from Satan comes in Job 42 and verse 10. And there it says that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And so we see there that Job's fortunes, uh, they turn around when Job stops worrying about himself and he thinks about how he can be a blessing to those around him. But there are more famous example of, of demonization among uh, I mean, uh, saints in the Bible, I would argue, is the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul was an interesting character, and in 2 Corinthians 11, he's defending his apostleship, and he describes how he's been shipwrecked and beaten and scourged and imprisoned and stoned and all the rest of it, which incidentally um, is a very similar job description to what frontline missionaries go through even today. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he continues with this autobiographical discussion and he talks about these incredible revelations that God gave him. He says in the beginning of that chapter, he knows someone who was caught up into the third heaven. And the Jews had this concept of seven heavens where God dwells in the seventh heaven and we dwell below the seventh heaven. And uh, there are angels at each gateway from the first to the second to the third to the fourth and so forth heavens. And uh, in order to get to the seventh heaven, you had a scroll with seven seals on it. And as you broke each scroll, so you went and there was a password and you could get to the next level of heaven. Does this sound familiar as Adventists? Well, of course it does, because we also know of a scroll with seven seals. But in Jewish mysticism, it is where I am trying to come into the presence of God. But in the book of Revelation, the person who holds that scroll with the seven seals is Jesus Christ, who's breaking into human history in the second coming. And so Paul has had these incredible revelations from God. He's been caught up into the third heaven, he says in chapter 2 Corinthians 12, in verse 2. And then he talks about uh, the impact in his life. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12, and verse 7, you see it on the screen. He says, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations, therefore, to keep me from being too elated or proud, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Now, um, we all wonder, what was this thorn in the flesh? Um, I'm just dealing with a kidney stone right now, and it certainly feels like a thorn in the flesh. Now, Martin Luther had kidney stones, and he called them messengers of Satan. And I would certainly, I wouldn't disagree with that conclusion from Martin Luther. But we say, what was this thorn in the flesh? Some people surmise that Paul had poor eyesight because he had um, a secretary to write out his letters for him. 
Others suggest that Paul's thorn in the flesh was the fact that he was a very poor public speaker. Maybe he had um, a lisp, maybe he stumbled as he walked. And so all kinds of speculations are out there. But I believe the text actually says what that thorn in the flesh was. And I've highlighted it in red for you on the screen. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And that phrase, messenger of Satan, is literally angelos to satanu, an angel of Satan to torment me. So if we're to take Paul literally, and we don't try and spiritualize what he's saying, he says that God allowed an angel of Satan to torment Paul. Why? In order to keep Paul from being too elated or too proud. Now, why would God allow this? Well, Paul was a brilliant scholar. He'd had a world-class education with a very famous scholar, Gamaliel I, in Jerusalem. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, and so his parents named him after the first Israelite king, Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had a proud a racial heritage. He was a Roman citizen, a fact he often made use of in, in his legal entanglements. He had a world-class education. He was advanced beyond many others in Judaism, his own age. You might say that Paul was the rising star in Judaism, even as Jesus was engaged in his ministry. And uh, so he then had special revelations from God in the third heaven, as he says earlier in this chapter. And so it would be easy for Paul to, met, to minister in his own strength. It'd be easy for him to rely on his world-class education. It'd be easy to rely, for him to rely on his social networks, the fact that he'd studied at the Harvard or Yale of his era with Gamaliel I in Jerusalem. And so to prevent Paul from ministering in his own strength, to stop Paul from becoming too proud as an, an apostle to the Gentiles, God allows a messenger of Satan to torment Saul or Paul in order that Paul might learn daily dependence upon God, that Paul might minister in the strength of God and in the power of Jesus Christ, rather than in his own wisdom or education or his own reputation as a brilliant scholar. A third example we find uh, now in the Gospels, and there are two examples when we look at in the Gospels. The first of these is the story of Peter. And uh, Peter was, um, he was full of himself. He was quick to talk and slow to think. And yet he had, he had this impulsive nature, but there's something lovable about Peter. And in, Mar in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been teaching the disciples repeatedly that he is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And he's going to be executed. And he's repeatedly saying this to the disciples. And uh, Peter, he, eventually he's had enough of this. And he pulls Jesus aside. And it says in the text that he rebuked Jesus. And that verb to rebuke is generally used in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to indicate when Jesus is rebuking the Spirit. So when Matthew and Mark also say that Peter was rebuking Jesus, it, the implication is that Peter is suggesting that the idea that Jesus has to die is something from Satan, and Jesus is speaking under satanic influence. And Jesus, he turns to Peter, and he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And what lesson do we learn from this example here? Well, Peter was not possessed. And he wasn't experiencing harassment, but this was a case of what we would consider oppression. That is, when a disciple of Jesus willfully, consciously, and knowingly contradicts a plain teaching of Jesus Christ, then he's allowing Satan to speak through him in that moment. And so Jesus does not say, get thee behind me, Peter. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, there's an important learning point for us as, as teachers. Uh, I guess many of you watching this are professors and educators, and um, you teach many people many wonderful things. 
But we are to be careful, myself included, that what we teach is consistent with the teachings of Jesus rather than um, something that curries human favor. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ and we're called to faithfully represent him in order that Satan might not work unwittingly for us through our lives and through our ministry. But then we find another example in the, in the Gospels, and that is the example of Judas. Now, in John chapter 6, um, Jesus talks about, uh, you have no part in me if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood. And many of his disciples, his followers, they leave him alone. And finally, there are just the 12 that are left. And uh, Jesus kind of asks them almost plaintively, he says, you know, uh, are you going to leave me as well? And uh, Peter says, well, where are we going to go, Lord? You know, and uh, the, the dialogue continues. And at the end of that chapter, Jesus says to the 12, he says, did I not choose you, the 12? Yet one of you or into one of you is a devil or a diabolos is the word you find in the Koine Greek. Jesus says into one of you is a devil. And quite literally, Jesus is talking to Judas Iscariot. The next verse, John 6, 71, explains that Jesus was speaking about Judas Iscariot. And so Judas Iscariot was possessed, that is the, the um, judgment of Jesus upon Judas Iscariot, near the beginning of his ministry. And Judas Iscariot, um, nobody among the disciples suspected this. You know, he was sent out with the 12. He cast out demons in the name of Jesus. He healed people in the name of Jesus. He proclaimed the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ, and nobody suspected it. Even though Matthew was an IRS agent, you know, he was a tax collector, it was Judas who was chosen to hold the common purse, which tells you that Judas was really trusted by the other 11 disciples. Jesus didn't say to the other uh, 11 disciples at nominating committee time, no, please do not choose Judas as a treasurer. And if they would say why, Jesus could have said, well, I can't say why, but please don't do it. We don't see that anywhere in the text. Jesus was okay for Judas to be the treasurer, even though Matthew as a tax collector was the obvious choice. And at the end of his ministry, um, Jesus and Judas have a dialogue in the upper room in John chapter 13 and Matthew 26, where Jesus is repeatedly offering mercy to Judas in the Last Supper. And finally, uh, in the Last Supper, Jesus, um, he, he has a dialogue with Judas, and Judas leaves the presence of Jesus, and John 13 says that Satan entered into him. And Judas goes out, and the text then says, it's a terrible verse, it says, and it was night. And so in John's gospel, in the beginning, John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, the light of the world, at the midnight hour. And at the end of his ministry, one of his disciples leaves Jesus, and he goes into darkness, as John says. It wasn't just the nighttime, but it was going to spiritual darkness. And later the next day, both Jesus and Judas hung on a tree outside of Jerusalem. One died for love of money and the other died for love of you and me. And so we see in these, these examples I've just been sharing with you that just because uh, you're a, a follower of God, that because you're a disciple of Jesus, you cannot assume that you are somehow immune from the attacks of Satan. Rather, the truth of the scripture is precisely because you are a follower of Jesus, so you are um, subject to satanic attack. And we may not always recognize this, particularly with our Western mindset. You know, things happen to us. Uh, we, we have a, an important maybe Bible study in the evening and anything that can go wrong goes wrong during the day. And it feels like we're running an uphill marathon just to get to that Bible study. And so um, many of us in the West, we kind of think, well, things just happen. But things don't just happen, uh, but rather we see in the word of God that um, Peter, and Judas, and Paul, and Job, who all thought they were close to God, and three of them were at least, 
um, they were all subject to satanic attack. So I think we'll move on to our next, next section here. I want to talk about um, how do we respond to the attacks of Satan upon Christians today? And the first thing we would say is from the, the teachings of Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to pray, to say, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, uh, the evil that Jesus is talking about is not rain on your wedding day, uh, and it's not a flat tire in, in a rainstorm. There's something deeper than this. Jesus says, deliver us from ho'echthros, which is the evil one. And so we are to pray for deliverance on a daily basis because we're also praying for our daily bread. So just as we pray for our daily bread, though Jesus isn't teaching us that we are to pray on a daily basis that our heavenly father will deliver us and protect us and set us free from the attacks of the evil one, that is, from Satan himself. And Revelation 12 and 1 Peter 5, they clearly indicate the identity of the attacker of Jesus' disciples. He is the devil. He is the ancient serpent of Eden. He is the dragon. He is the deceiver of the whole world. He is the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, together with his fallen angels, otherwise known as demons. Now, we can cooperate with our Heavenly Father in this prayer when we, um, we close the doors for Satan to enter our lives. A good example of this we find later in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, verse 17 through 20, um, Paul is preaching in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey on the coast of the Aegean. And uh, many of the, the people, they give their lives to Jesus Christ. And this is what the text says. It says, when this became known, that is the gospel, to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burnt them publicly. When the value of those books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So in this example here, we find uh, in the apostolic era, we find a community who are coming to Jesus Christ in faith. And they recognize that they're coming from a pagan society where there's a lot of a cultic activity going on. And rather than stick that stuff in the basement, in a box, they bring it into the public square and they burn it. They will have nothing to do with occultic um, paraphernalia within their lives. And uh, in mission service today, this is what we do with people around the world. Whether we're working with animists in, in Cambodia, or whether we're working with Buddhists in, in Thailand, or whether we're working uh, with Hindus in India, in many cultures, people collect a lot of animistic um, artifacts. Uh, many um, idols, many um, amulets, many ringlets that are devoted to the worship of a certain demon, of a certain deity. And uh, when people come to Jesus Christ, um, what we do with our missionaries is you know, we, we instruct them that they need to burn all of this stuff, that they, there needs to be no part of this in their lives. Uh, even here in America, um, this also happens more often than we care to admit. Um, in, in AFM, uh, I get a call maybe once a week from somebody in America um, who's having trouble with demonic harassment. And uh, we walk, walk them through a process that leads to deliverance in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. We thank God for his power to set people free. But Jesus has never lost a battle with Satan. Very important point for us to remember. But time and again, uh, I, I go to people's homes um, with a colleague in ministry. And uh, as, as we're working with them through the process of setting them free from Satan's attacks, we often walk through the house with that person and uh, we look in the drawers, we look at their internet viewing history, uh, we look um, at what their, their CDs and their DVDs are, 
and uh, I'm no longer surprised by how much stuff I find in Adventist homes that has an explicit occultic link. And sometimes it's something that was given as a gift. Sometimes it's an artifact they've picked up on a foreign trip. Uh, sometimes it's, it's an inheritance from a grandmother who maybe was involved in Freemasonry or, or was a medium herself. And so these things, they gather in the homes of Adventists, and then the Adventists wonder why things are going wrong. And so uh, we can cooperate with God by cleansing our homes and our hearts of anything that will give Satan permission to enter our homes. By this, I mean cherished sins, unconfessed sins, um, um, attitudes that we need to repent of. Maybe we've been hurt as a child and we nurture bitterness towards the one who caused us that terrible harm. Whatever it is, these are avenues or doors through which Satan can attack Christians today and cause their incalculable suffering. So we can cooperate with God by asking ourselves today, is there anything in my life today on this beautiful Sabbath day, is there anything in my life today that cannot be offered as a holy sacrifice to a holy God? And if there is something in my life today, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now and just bringing something to your mind, something that cannot be offered as a holy sacrifice to a holy God, then maybe it's time to get rid of that thing. Maybe it's time to take it out of the house and to have nothing further to do with it. Because when that thing is in your house and is in your home, the chances are it is in your heart. And that gives permission to Satan to enter into your life. Uh, many of us, when we go as tourists to Washington, I like going to Washington, uh, we go to the mall and we see the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial and uh, the Washington Monument. Then we walk up the mall to Congress. Maybe you go back to the Supreme Court. Then we come down Pennsylvania Avenue, we come to the White House. And uh, this is where all the tourists go. And this part of Washington tends to be clean and uh, well swept, and it looks really nice. But if you go uh, half a mile from that central area, that central plaza, you will find every vice known to humanity. And sometimes our lives are a bit like that. We have a public area that we're happy to show to people, an area, that, an aspect of who we are that is on public display, that's clean and, and squeaky clean, and we dressed in our, in our Sabbath best. And uh, this is what we're happy for people to know about us. And that looks nice. But oftentimes we also have back alleys in our lives that are filled with garbage that the rats may feed on. And that it is in those back alleys where we have unconfessed or cherished sin, that, that is where Satan enters our lives and causes an immense amount of grief the followers of Jesus today. So once again, I want to challenge you, if there's something in your life today that you cannot offer as a holy sacrifice to a holy God, I want to challenge you, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning on this beautiful Sabbath day, do not harden your heart, but listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And if that thing is not consistent with the kingdom of God, then prayerfully go home today and have the courage to take it out of your home once and for all. Out of your home, away from your hearth, out of your heart and close that door to Satan and his right to enter your life. The next thing we find in the, in the Gospels is the advice of Paul. We are to stand firm in the armor of God. You see, in the New Testament, we find that Christ has already defeated Satan. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. We see that every conversion demonstrates the power of God. That is Ephesians 2 and verse 6. We see that the existence of the church is, is a reminder to the universe that Satan's power has been broken. Ephesians 3 verses 8 through 11. That although he is a defeated foe, Satan is still dangerous whom we are called to resist. Resist the devil, says James, and he will flee from you. And the next verse is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
So we are not to attack Satan, but we are to stand firm in the armor of God in order to face that Satan's attacks. And so we are to command to put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Uh, Paul goes on to say, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So once again, we have the idea of standing, to stand in the armor of God, to withstand on that evil day. That is when evil comes into your life, as it will do, we can stand in the armor of God. Stand, therefore, Ephesians 6, 14, the third time in this little passage, this teaching of Paul, we are commanded to stand and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, um, Paul is using uh, the, the imagery of infantry. And if infantry are commanded to stand, they are not taking an offensive action against the enemy, but they're essentially taking a defensive position. And so when we talk about uh, setting people free from the attacks of Satan, we can compare different models. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has a very, very well-defined liturgy for what they consider to be exorcism. Uh, you can download it from the internet. It is full of some, uh, some prayers that are very, very poetic. You know, Father of light, come and set us free from the Prince of Darkness and so forth. But it is also full of prayers to the Virgin Mary and various other saints. So the Catholic Church has a very ritualized approach to this kind of thing. In the evangelical world, we see there is a very aggressive approach to this. Uh, so you have prayer walks and you walk around a city and you name it and you claim it and you walk through a road and you're, you're rebuking the demons under every rock and behind every hedge and uh, behind every car. And we don't see any evidence for that in the word of God. Um, rather, what we see in the word of God is a command that we are to stand with the shield of faith, wearing the armor of God. And uh, what we are to do, the only offensive weapon we have, the sword is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, um, I was very surprised to learn this as I was studying this out, but Paul does not use the phrase, the logos to Theo, the word, the logos, it means word, the logos to Theo. He doesn't use that word here. He uses the word rema to Theo, the, the word of God, which means the spoken utterance of the word of God. And so our offensive weapon against Satan is to speak the word of God. And why would that be the case? It's an interesting question. And uh, to understand the answer, it's important to realize that encounters with demon are not power encounters, they are truth encounters. Because at the end of the day, every temptation is a lie. And you, you counteract lies with truth. And as a fallen human being, I can never be sure that what I say is absolutely true. Because how can you get something perfect out of someone who is imperfect? The only thing in my life that I know is absolutely true is the word of God. And that is why the Apostle Paul counsels us when we are um, facing demonic attack, we are to speak the words of God into that situation. Why? Because God's word is truth. And truth is the antidote to falsehood or temptation or Satan, who is the father of lies. So we're to speak the word of God. And so you know, in my Bible, I carry a list of texts just inside um, the front cover. And when we're dealing with people who are being attacked by demons, uh, we, we often use those texts. Sometimes the demons will speak. And, and in response, you just quote from the word of God, because the word of God is absolute truth. And it's reminded to the demons that there is a living God who has spoken these words. And one day he will bring that demon to judgment. And the demons are very afraid of that. And so we are to stand in the armor of God. We're not to go looking for demons. 
But if we are living a Christian life of witness and worship and praise and ministry, uh, we can be sure that we will be attacked by Satan in one way or another or his de demons. And therefore, we have to stand firm in the armor of God, um, trusting that the armor that God gives us is sufficient for the task. The third thing that we find in the scripture um, is that we are to humble ourselves before God in fasting and prayer. And we find the teaching for this in Matthew 17, verses 18 through 21. And it says there that Jesus rebuked the devil as the devil within the child, and he departed out of him. The child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind, that is this kind of demon, goeth out, goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And so the, the third command we find in the scripture when we are facing demonic attack is we respond with prayer and fasting. And we ask ourselves, why do prayer and fasting go together? In the scriptures well there are some uh, some obvious reasons uh, the first is that you know, if you have a heavy meal you tend to feel very kind of um, a bit woozy a bit tired it's hard to think clearly and likewise when you fast uh, for 24 hours you will find that um, you're kind of feeling a bit ratty and a bit um, irritable uh, if you fast for 48 hours you'll find that your, your mind is really clearing up and if you get to 72 hours you find that your mind is like a sharp knife and uh, when your mind is like a sharp, not sharp knife, you have a much greater sense of discernment of what you're dealing with when somebody's brought to you who's claiming that they're being harassed by a demon. And the discernment of spirits is one of the gifts that God promises his church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so um, we are called to pray and fast. First of all, we have a greater sense of discernment. But fasting goes with prayer because um, if you just ask yourself today, how much time does the average person spend in preparing food, eating food, washing the dishes afterwards, and feeling a bit woozy afterwards or a bit you know, heavy-headed, maybe a couple of hours a day. Uh, maybe if you're a homemaker, you may spend maybe three or four hours a day just on the food side of life. Well, if you're fasting, you suddenly create time in an otherwise busy schedule to pray. If you have no food preparation, you're not sitting down to eat, you're not washing the dishes afterwards, you've magically created out of almost nothing in a busy day, time to pray. And so prayer and fasting go side by side. But perhaps more importantly, fasting is a symbol of humbling ourselves before God. And when we humble ourselves before God, we're saying, Lord, when you give the victory, this comes in your power and rather than my strength. This comes in your name rather than in my name. And so when we fast, we're saying, God, to you be the glory and the victory will come in your name and in your power rather than in my human strength. And so prayer and fasting are an integral component of setting people free from the attacks of Satan. And we find this with missionaries all over the world, that when they know there is a deliverance session coming up, uh, that people will be praying for maybe a week beforehand. Some will be fasting for a week and before the Sabbath day when they're going to minister to someone who is under attack from Satan. And so Sister White talks about this in First Testimonies, uh, page 344, paragraph one. She says, they, and she's talking about the victims of demonic possession or attack, they should entreat those who have had a religious experience and have faith in the promises of God to plead with the mighty deliverer in their behalf. It will be a close conflict. Satan will reinforce his evil angels who have controlled these persons. But if the saints of God with deep humility fast and pray 
their prayers will prevail. Amen, we say. Jesus will commission holy angels to resist Satan, and he will be driven back and his power broken from off the afflicted ones. And uh, we see this today uh, in our ministry as with, with Adventist Frontier Missions, with our missionaries around the world, that time and again, people are being set free from the attacks of Satan when God's saints humble themselves before God, pray and fast, and then rebuke the demons and drive them out in the name of Jesus Christ. And so um, Ellen White does not counsel us to engage in dialogue with demons uh, because uh, demons are liars. And if you have a dialogue with a demon, your chances are they're just going to lie to you. She does not counsel us to find the name of the demon, which is a, a common um, a practice among some evangelical groups. Uh, the idea is that uh, if, if you have a dog, and, um, and your dog's name is Charlie, and you go to the park, and there's lots of dogs running around, if you just shout out, come here, come here, Charlie may not come to you, because come here, come here could be to any dog. But if you say, Charlie, come here, uh, that gives you authority. Knowing the name of the dog gives you authority over the dog. And so some people have the idea that you, you, you dialogue with the demon so that you can get the demon's name. That gives you authority, just as you have authority over a dog. But nowhere in the word of God and nowhere in the spirit of prophecy is there anything said about dialoguing with demons or gaining the names of demons uh, because they're infinitely more smart than we are. And uh, it's like a child talking with an adult. So we're going to be outwitted if we try and dialogue with these very powerful, very smart and um, fallen beings. Rather, we are to trust in the armor of God and to put the case in the hands of our heavenly father and to recognize that Jesus has never lost a battle with Satan. And it is Jesus who fights on our behalf. So what do we proclaim from scripture today? Well, the scriptures teach that behind the scenes of earthly affairs, invisible supernatural forces for good and evil, they are engaged in cosmic warfare for the allegiance and control of every human being, including me and you watching this program here this morning. The scriptures teach the existence of a literal personal devil, once called Lucifer and now named Satan from Isaiah 14, 12, who was once the highest ranked and the most beautiful angel in heaven. The scriptures teach that Satan experienced a moral fall. He had sin entered his heart through pride. He wants to be like God. And he took a third of all the angels with him into rebellion against God. And that's at the conclusion of that first war in heaven, he was literally and physically ejected from heaven, eventually coming down to planet Earth. We find that in Revelation 12, 7 through 9. The scriptures teach that Satan and his fallen angels, demons, they continue to this day in waging continual ruthless warfare against the kingdom of God, and all that is good and worthwhile in the universe, Revelation 12, 13 through 17. The scriptures teach that during Earth's final days, Satan will send forth three demonic spirits who will delude and control the overwhelming majority of the powers and inhabitants of our world to fight against God Almighty and to persecute God's faithful children. The scriptures teach that Satan will seek to bring about an overwhelming delusion at the end of time to deceive, if possible, even the elect of God and those who do not love the truth. Second Thessalonians 2, 9, 10 talks about this. Those who are not deceived are not those who know the truth merely. Those who are not deceived are those who love the truth. There is a difference between knowing the truth and loving the truth. The scriptures teach that the forces of evil uh, that weigh down humanity are so powerful that in our own selves, we cannot hope to successfully withstand the forces of evil, Ephesians 6, 12. But, but they also teach that in the first Christmas story, the arrival of the kingdom of God set up a direct confrontation with the kingdom of Satan and that the forces of darkness have never been able to extinguish the light of the world. John 1, 5 
says that um, the darkness could not overwhelm the light. That verse tells us uh, that the light is shining in the darkness, the verse says, and that verse doesn't just apply to Jesus himself, it applies to his followers who are the light shining today, and the darkness did not overwhelm it. That tells us there's always a struggle between good and evil, between light and dark, but in the promise of John 1 verse 5, the darkness will never prevail or does not prevail over light. You know, if you have a candle and uh, in the middle of the day you light a candle um, in, in a metrodome, for instance, a large building, um, nobody will see the light from that candle. But as nighttime comes and the lights are dimmed and the lights go off and the darkness gathers, um, that same candle, everybody in the metrodome can see the light from that candle. And so as the darkness of persecution gathers, so the light of witness shines brighter and brighter. The scriptures teach that in 1 John 3, 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And I say amen to that. And in his first sermon at Nazareth, Jesus declared that he had come to proclaim release to the captives, right? that is to deliver the victims of satanic harassment and possession. Now the scriptures teach us that while our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, a passage we're familiar with, Ephesians 6.12, those rulers, another phrase for fallen angels, if you do a study, those rulers are fallen angels, they can never separate Christians from the love of God. Amen. For I'm convinced, said Paul, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, that is fallen angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so even demons cannot separate us from the love of God. God's love is too powerful and they cannot come between God and his chosen children. The scriptures teach, as I said before, that Jesus has never lost an encounter with Satan. When there was war in heaven, Christ triumphed and Satan was cast out of heaven. When there was a conflict in the wilderness at the start of his ministry, Christ triumphed over Satan in the wilderness and Satan was driven from his presence. Christ triumphed over Satan's fallen angels while on earth. He bound up the strong man in the conflict in the wilderness and throughout his ministry, he went around plundering um, the possessions of the strong man, that is setting free Satan's victims that they might worship God. And when Jesus comes again, Satan and all his angels will be cast into that lake of fire, Revelation 20 and verse 10. See, the scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ, the good news, that Jesus Christ is the savior of mankind. Yes, Jesus was the best teacher in human history. Jesus was the best healer in human in history, but he was more than that. He did not come simply to teach and he did not come simply to heal. He came to save. And this is precisely because the evil we experience today has a satanic origin that we cannot experience it uh, um, get overcome this evil through a uh, better Christian education, through better parenting skills, through carefully nuanced GC resolutions or local church programs. See, our greatest enemy is not ignorance and our greatest need is not education. Our greatest enemy is not poverty and our greatest need is not economic development. Our greatest need is not social division. And our greatest enemy, our greatest enemy is not social division. And our greatest need is not social harmony. No, our greatest problem is evil personal malevolent evil and our greatest need today and for all time is a personal loving savior and that savior is jesus christ who came into this world to save this world to he came to seek and to save that which was lost god did not send his son to the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved i say amen amen amen
the scriptures teach that because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and because he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore he's able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We serve a wonderful savior who has never lost a battle with Satan, and he wants to set his children free today from the attacks of Satan. So what do we say in conclusion today? Well, the biblical worldview is that there has been a fall and the human race is broken and wounded. We're not intrinsically good. We are intrinsically fallen. We are broken and we are wounded. And each one of us bears the, the, the imprint of sin in our lives, maybe in different ways. Some of us have different behavioral traits. Some of us have different desires. Some of us have different character weaknesses. We all bear the imprint of sin in different ways in our lives. But evil in our world is bigger than just who we are. Evil basically is supernatural in origin and Satan is behind all evil. And so our struggle is not just against the human forces of evil in our world today, but against spiritual principalities and powers. And precisely because of the enormity and power of this vast evil that we're up against, we need a savior to save us. And in the fullness of time, God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the one who was anointed with the Holy Spirit and filled with the power of God to free us from the dominion of the devil. And we read in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Later in the book of Acts, we read that the entire community of disciples was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and thus filled with the Spirit of God, the early church proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ, demonstrating it tangibly by healing the sick and driving out of demons. And so indeed we are to pray every day in our Lord's Prayer, just as we pray for our daily bread, Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. And the fact that Jesus teaches us to pray this means that there is a promise in this prayer that just as God feeds us on a daily basis, so God will deliver us from the evil one on a daily basis. It is not a once, uh, once delivered, always delivered. There is a daily protection of our Heavenly Father for his faithful children today, no matter where they live on planet Earth, no matter where they've come from, no matter the struggles they're going through, there is the promise of daily protection from our Heavenly Father. This is good news for all of us. It is good news for our families, for those we love, and it is wonderful news for those whom we share the gospel with. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in Iraq, uh, as in 2015, and uh, ISIS was rampaging across northern Syria and northern Iraq. They, they were attacking the Yazidis in northwest Iraq around Shinjar. Then they came to um, ancient Nineveh, modern-day city of Mosul. And just as they arrived in Mosul, I was arriving in Erbil as the capital of the, the Iraqi a region within northern, of uh, the Kurdish region within northern Iraq. And uh, it's about 50 miles, let us say, from Erbil to, to um, Mosul. And the, um, there wasn't much between Erbil and Mosul, just an empty desert, really. And there were very, very few military forces. And so when I was in Erbil, we were expecting ISIS to roll down the roads in their Toyota Land Cruisers and to do their worst to the Christians who were huddled in Erbil. Well, when ISIS took Mosul, um, they gave the Christians a 48-hour deadline to convert, leave, or die. And so the Christians basically left. They left everything. They left their homes. They left their cars. They left their possessions. They left their jobs. They left their savings. Um, they left their dead. Uh, many did not make it to Erbil. Um, they, uh, the men folk were shot. The children were taken. The girls were forced into uh, terrible activities. 
And uh, I was walking through a warehouse in Urbal one afternoon. It was very, very hot. It was over 50 degrees Celsius, uh, maybe over 120 Fahrenheit, very, very hot. And uh, I came across a lady and she was sitting on, on a mattress and uh, she had a faraway look in her eyes. And so I, I came down and I squatted opposite her, my translator, and I asked her to share her story. And um, she told her story. And uh, Isis had come to her home. They told her they, she had to leave, convert or die. And so she decided to leave with her husband. As they came out of Mosul, they were stopped by Isis. And they took her husband, they took him behind a sand berm and they executed him. They took her wedding band, they took her watch. And they took her two girls, aged 10 and 12. And there may be children watching this, so I'm not going to say any more than that. But as, we was, as I was speaking with this lady, she fell into silence. And for the first time, I understood why when Job's friends came to see him in Job chapter 2, they said nothing for seven days. They sat in silence and observed him in his suffering. That was perhaps the most helpful thing they did to Job. And uh, faced with the enormity of the evil that this woman was grappling with, there was nothing I could say. I just had to sit in silence opposite her. Tears came down her cheeks and tears came down my cheeks at the reality of a profound evil in our world today. The conversation went on. I noticed beside her there was a little statue of Mary. It was only, you know, maybe five inches high, uh, 10 centimeters. And uh, so the conversation switched to spiritual matters. Uh, she was a Maronite. It's a very ancient sect of Christianity. It goes back to the second and third centuries. And uh, I asked her about the statuette of Mary. And uh, she said, look, she said, they can take my home. They can take my husband. They can take my job. They can take my wedding band. They can take my money. They'll take my daughters. But they can't take my faith. That's, that was not the moment to have a Bible study on the second commandment, clearly. This woman who lost everything because she bore the name of Christ had gone through far more than anything I have gone through in my life. Again, we sat in silence and she began to talk about how God was giving her peace in her heart and how one day she was going to see her daughters again. And the verse came to my mind from Psalm 37, Psalm 34, verses 7 and 8, a beautiful promise from God. It says, the angel of the Lord encamps round about those who fear him and delivers them. We do live in a world of evil. That evil is not just abstract, it is personal, it is malevolent, and it seeks to destroy God's children. And so the promise of the word of God for us today is the angel of the Lord encamps round about those who fear him and delivers them. And the next verse says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy or blessed are those who take refuge in him. As we take refuge in God, we find a peace that this world cannot give. We find a peace that transcendeth human understanding. We find a peace that you cannot buy for gold or silver, dollars or pounds or euros. And we find that the angels of the Lord truly encamps about those who love him and who, and who fear him. I spent some time in prayer with that lady. We went our separate ways, but she remains in my mind every day. What happened to her? What happened to her daughters? I do not know. Only God knows. And every day I pray for her, praying that God will watch over her and her children. For evil is real, evil is personal, 
evil is malevolent, but we serve a God who saves. And we serve a God who one day will right all wrongs, who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When he comes again, death and disease and suffering shall be no more. And so I challenge you to pray afresh today to our Heavenly Father. Father, deliver me today from the evil one. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a moment and we just share a benediction together. Dear Heavenly Father, we're living in a world today where there are many giants in the land, giants of poverty, giants of hatred, giants of anger. But Lord, there are very personal giants out there as well, giants of personal pain, the giants of the abuse that we may have experienced, the giants of anguish in our hearts, the giants of a cancer diagnosis, a divorce, the death of a spouse or the loss of a child. And so today, Father, we ask that you deliver us from the attacks of the evil one, that you set us free from the pain of the past, that you fight the battles for us that we cannot fight. We ask that behind the scenes, uh, visible to human eyes, that Jesus will stand tall in our lives and he will fight those battles for us and he will conquer those giants that we may experience today the peace that only Jesus can give. Thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer. I pray once again that you will set us free from the attacks of the evil one today, that our lips may carry your praises through this coming week, that when people turn to us in conversation, what we talk about is your deliverance and your goodness and your patience and your mercy to each of us. Thank you, Father, for setting us free. Thank you for watching over us. And thank you for living our lives with us in a way that we can walk in peace and joy and happiness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.